We are in chapter 16 of Genesis. Sarai, losing patience with this God, decides that she's going to take matters in her own hands. So now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had not given birth to any children, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, since Yahweh has prevented me from having children, have sexual relations with my servant, perhaps I can have a family by her. And Abraham did what Sarai told her. Now this seems very strange to us today, um, except I think we're, there, we have the idea of a surrogate mother, um, especially with um, inverto fertilization and all that kind of stuff. Here's the reality. The law of the Mesopotamian culture says that if you have a maidservant, that maidservant belongs to you. This is not a maidservant of Abram. This is a servant of Sarai. This is a slave of Sarai. So therefore, she can use the servant to provide her with a kid, and that kid will legally belong to Sarai because the servant legally belongs to Sarai. And so this is her legal Legally, this is binding, as much as an adoption would be for us today. So in Sarah's eyes, in the law's eyes, in Abram's eyes, this is legit. But there's two problems here. Well, there's lots of problems. One is the big lack of faith. But two major problems that come out of that lack of faith is, one, we're immediately told she's an Egyptian. Now, at this point, yes, we haven't read Exodus yet, if this is your first time reading the Bible. But at the same time, the people who are first reading this book for the first time ever have just experienced the Exodus. So you have to remember that they would be interpreting the story in light of being slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And the minute they were brought out, God has already given them the command that don't go back to Egypt ever. So yes, chronologically, Genesis is written first, but that doesn't mean that this is pre the revealing of the law. The, 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 the Israelites have already been in Egypt. They've already come out of Egypt. Egypt is bad, 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 bad. And they've already been given parts of the law, which says don't ever go back to Egypt. And now they're reading a story about Sarai going to an Egyptian and Abram going to an Egyptian. And so this would automatically be seen as bad. The other thing is they're trusting the law, not in God. But the other big thing is, is that this makes Abram a polygamist. Because it's not just he's having sexual relations with her, that would be fornication. But he's actually taking her to be his wife, which means he's now a polygamist, which has already been revealed as something that's not okay. So Abram has just gone from this incredible status of, and he believed, and God credited to him as righteousness. And that that chapter is going to become the foundational theological principle for James and Paul to make the arguments about what faith is. Now he's just plummeted down into a total lack of faith. He gives in to his wife without ever putting up an argument and he's becoming a polygamist, and he's going to an Egyptian. So we're going from one extreme to the extreme. And this is making the author's argument even more, that salvation is not through obedience to the law. Because Abram's been declared righteous. He's been declared saved, so to speak. He's going to become the role model for salvation. However, Abram's violating the law left and right, left and right all over the place, before and after his declaration of righteousness. Therefore, 
salvation has to be more than just obedience to the law. And so that's the argument that the author of the Torah is going to be making here, and this is one of the examples that he uses. So Abram takes them. So after Abram had lived in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, Abram's wife, gave Hagar, her Egyptian servant, to her husband to be the wife. And he had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Once Hagar realized that she was pregnant, she despised Sarai. Now why? She is now a slave who's able to have a child, which is the only thing that gives a man and woman true significance in the culture of that time period, which means in her eyes, she's been able to do more than Sarai can. She has, in the culture's eyes, she has greater value, greater prestige. So the slave woman is now able to do what a free woman cannot do. And not only that, she is now equal in some ways, not totally equal because she'd be considered a concubine, but she has been lifted up by being married to Abram. She now has a child that Sarai doesn't have, which lifts her up even more, which Abram, knowing the human heart, might begin to love her and value her more, especially if she can have more kids and more kids, and eventually she might actually supersede Sarah. Not only are we going to learn over and over again in the Bible, the polygamy brings a world of hurt. Um, one of the reasons that God never specifically condemns polygamy is because the life lessons from these stories should just be convincing enough. Um, we know this. Testimonies of people who have done drugs or alcohol are typically more powerful than somebody just saying, don't do drugs or alcohol. And so the reality is, this should be the life lesson. But not only that, now there's competition. And what's even worse is we have now been dealing with a huge conflict of Lot potentially being the man that Abram will give the inheritance to, not his own child. And now that Lot is stepping out of the picture as a threat to that, now Abram goes out and introduces a new threat, a child. Now, obviously, Ishmael, we don't want to see him as an illegitimate child in a bad way, that is, but he is an illegitimate child as far as the blessings and the promises of God go. Not that God isn't going to bless him, but that God is going to use him in order to continue on the covenant. So he's not technically, because God says from your own body, and it's going to be clear that it's going to be Isaac only. So Sarai goes to Abram, and now the problem has become so big that she wants Abraham or Abram to fix the problem. Sarai, verse 5, said to Abram, You have brought this wrong on me. I allowed my servant to have sexual relations with you, but when she realized that she was pregnant, she despised me. May Yahweh judge between me and you. So this takes you right back to the garden. It's your fault. You brought this on me. It's your fault that you're fertile and I'm not. Well, remember, this is Sarah's brilliant idea. But it's interesting that she does say in the end, May God judge us. Which is interesting is that she does see this as a lack of faith. Now the question is, did she see as a lack of faith before she made the choice to give it to Abram? Or is she beginning to realize that it probably was a lack of faith now that she's brought into a world of hurt? And so she makes Abram cast her out. Now, Abram goes ahead and he says, do what you think is best. Now, in one way that's really cruel. But in other ways, the law also says that if a servant has displeased a master, 
the master has the right to do whatever they want with them as far as a casting them out. And so basically they have the right to say, I don't want you anymore, and they will cast them out, and they'll give them just enough provisions to survive for a few days. And the idea is if you're not guilty, then the gods will take care of you out there in the wilderness. If you are guilty, then you'll die, but you deserve to die because you're guilty. Because remember, that wouldn't work in our culture because no one really truly believes in that concept of the gods. But in this culture, the gods determine everything. And so this is their way, and this is part of Abram is kind of a, a lack of compassion, but part of it is also the gods will take care of it. Or maybe in his case specifically, Yahweh will take care of it. And so notice how there doesn't seem to be any evidence that they're truly following God here. It almost feels like this is a story pre-God coming to Abraham in chapter 12. Now, if you want to be really honest with yourselves, you probably could say there's many moments in your life after being a Christian that probably somebody could look at you and say, that seems like you did that pre-Christ. And I could take a snapshot of any moment in your life and hold it up as an exhibit A of that evidence that you're not a Christian. And so it's not that Abram's backslid majorly. It's just that total redemption takes a while to incorporate every part of our life. But once again, the point here is the threat to the promises. So there's two major points that are driving this story. One, that this is becoming a new threat to the promise because now Ishmael is going to have even more of a legal claim to the inheritance than Lot ever did, or Eleazar, if that's who he was talking about. So now he's just introduced a true, legitimate, biological, legal threat to taking the blessings of God. Now, one might ask, well, why is that a big deal? I mean, it's still technically the son of Abram, and why can't God just use that? Yes, this is a lack of faith. Yes, it's not technically Sarai, but once again, remember, he doesn't specifically said Sarai yet. The problem is, this is a child born out of works. It's not that this child is bad. It's not this child is illegitimate. It's not that this child should be unloved. It's not that God won't take care or love this child. It's the fact that this child represents the promises coming into existence through a lack of faith in God and a works-oriented man trying to fix the problem on his own. And this takes us back to the fact that, yes, maybe in itself, it would be nothing technically wrong with Abram receiving money from Sodom, the king of Sodom, as a thank you offering for what he did, but receiving that money takes away the glory of God and what he has done. And so don't think of this bad as in that Ishmael is bad for existing. Think of it as bad as that this doesn't really display the full glory of God and it doesn't really begin the redemption of all humanity in the right way. It's not about faith, it's about works. And we're going to discover later one of the reasons that God's going to end up waiting 25 years is because he's waiting for Sarah to pass menopause. So that when Isaac comes into existence, it is so obvious that it's a miracle. And it's so obvious that it is God. And so that's an incredible statement. So, that's, so the other thing that's wrong here is that now we are 
going or the other major point that's being driven here is that 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 Abram's not being righteous. So it's furthering that the fact that the righteousness doesn't come through the law. So these are two major things of why this story is here. It's presenting a new threat to the promises of God, and it's making the point that Abram is still considered righteous, even though he's not acting righteously all the time. But it introduces a third concept here, because now we get to see Yahweh's response to this. We've seen Yahweh respond to Abram's lack of faith. We've seen God respond to Abram's demonstration of faith. And they've been pretty equal in each cases. Yes, there have been consequences for Abram's lack of faith, and there have been more blessings for Abraham's demonstration of faith. But each time, no matter what, God keeps honoring his promises. Whether Abram is faithful or not, God keeps honoring his promises to Abram, and he keeps pursuing him, and he keeps um, walking with him. Now, we're going to look at how God is going to deal with this illegitimate theological child and this Egyptian woman who is not a part of the covenant in any kind of a way. And so what does he do with this? So she goes out into the wilderness, and it is there that the angel of Yahweh appears to Hagar, the angel of Yahweh. Now, many people have taken this to be a pre-incarnation of Christ. Because over and over again, we're told the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh. And we're thinking, oh, this angel, they keep showing up in this amazing prominent role where he speaks as if he is God. And he's also called the angel of Yahweh, which a lot of times we just hear the angels or the angel did that or the angel that. But this one's specifically called the angel of Yahweh. So this must be a pre-incarnation of Christ. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. One, this doesn't say this is God. It doesn't even really connect the angel to God in any kind of unique way. <clears throat> what it really is saying is it's possessive. It's not saying the angel who is Yahweh. It's saying the angel of Yahweh. So I can say you're the child of Yahweh. That doesn't make you the pre-incarnation of Christ. It just means that you belong in a possessive way to God. It's amazing, like, how will we get possessive words like of, but then we throw our grammar completely out the window when it's like, oh, Jesus. Okay, no, grammar still applies when we're talking about theology. And so the, it can't be Christ here because it's just an angel that belongs to Yahweh. The other thing is, is that we don't even know if this is the same angel every time throughout the Bible. I mean, the word angel just means messenger. And that word angel is actually used of humans at different times when David sends a messenger, an angel, off to the king of Aram. Well, that's just a human messenger. Context is what defines whether it's an angel or whether it's a human. And obviously this is context because this is being sent by Yahweh. And we're told that it's a messenger of Yahweh. So that immediately lets us know this is not a human messenger, this is an angelic messenger. But in that sense, the word the messenger doesn't automatically mean it's the same messenger every single time, nor would it mean that if I said, I'm sending you a messenger, and then I say, I'm sending you another messenger, that we wouldn't mind, oh, it's the same guy every time. Okay, we might not be surprised if it's the same person, but we wouldn't demand that it would be the same person. So there's nothing about this phrase, how it's used throughout the Bible, to even suggest the same angel appearing every single time. 
The other big problem with this is, yes, he speaks as if he's God, but so do the prophets. There are many, 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 many times that the prophets talk as if they are God themselves, because that's just how representation works. Even when we send ambassadors off to other countries, those ambassadors talk as if they are the president, because they are the president, so to speak, at that moment as the ambassador. And there's nothing that they would say that the president would already approve of. And if they said something the president wouldn't approve of, then they probably wouldn't have that ambassadorship very long. And so the reality is that doesn't necessitate that, because if it does, then it automatically means the prophets are Jesus as well. The other problem with this is, is that when we get to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is going to spend two chapters, the very first two chapters, making the argument that Christ is superior to an angel's. Now, you can't spend two chapters making the argument that Christ is superior to the angels and then turn around and say, this is Christ. You would have to spend probably at least another chapter arguing why this is different. Yet never does the author ever deal with this. It just says Christ is superior to the angels and gives all these reasons why and makes that the gulf between Jesus and angels is so deep and wide and tremendously big that the authors, the Hebrews, digs out. There's no way in your mind could you ever make a connection to the angel of Yahweh here after reading those first two chapters. So there's no way that it could be Christ. The other reason it can't be Christ is that we're clearly told that long ago in the book of Hebrews, Christ spoke through prophets and messengers and angels, all that kind of stuff, but today he speaks through his son implying that God bringing a message through Jesus is a brand new thing in the second coming, or in the first coming of Christ. Well, if he was coming over and over and over again here, then that wouldn't be a new thing. Then the author would have to say, long ago, Jesus was coming to us here and there and there and there, and now he comes to us again. But he doesn't make that argument. The other big key to this is not Jesus, is that if this is Jesus, holy cow, that's an incredible evidence to the pre-existence of Jesus before the Incarnation. You would think that every New Testament writer, at least one, would jump on that and start making connections all over the place. But yet not one New Testament writer makes any connection to the angel of the Lord to make an evidence or a claim that Jesus has always existed. And that itself, I think, is an ironclad argument, especially when we believe that all the First Testament is about Christ and leading up to him you would think this would be a pretty big one to latch on to. And so this cannot be Christ. This is just an angelic being who's speaking on behalf of God, no different than a human being who speaks on behalf of God that we call a prophet. Is it the same angel every time? I don't know. Does that make sense? And so this angel comes to Hagar in the desert, and she's about ready to die of starvation and thirst. And he said to Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? Uh, and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Now this is huge. Because we have an angel of Yahweh appearing to a woman who has professed no faith at all. She's given no evidence that she's part of the covenant. And she's an Egyptian on top of that. This is very rare in the Bible of an angel. This shows the incredible value that this God of the universe is giving to a woman who's outside of the covenant and is having a child as a result of a lack of faith. And then Yahweh's angel said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. I will greatly multiply your descendants. 
And Yahweh's angel added, so that they will be too numerous to count. And Yahweh's angel said to her, You are now pregnant, and you are about ready to give birth to a son, and you will name him Ishmael, which means God hears. And that's significant because the idea that God is saying is, I hear even the cries of a slave who is a woman, who is an Egyptian, who is outside the covenant. That's huge. We expect God to hear a male of faith in the covenant, even a woman of faith in the covenant. But a woman who's an Egyptian outside of the covenant, he hears her as well. And that's huge. This screams to the character of God and his love for people. So you're going to give him a burn. Notice that he begins to give him the blessings of be fruitful and multiply. We're being already, we're being groomed to think that the blessings of being fruitful and multiplied given in the garden are only being restored to those who are part of Israel. But now we're given the idea that Ishmael is too. But remember, God made a promise to bless Abram's children. And even though Ishmael is not God's desire and not his intention, God honors his promises. And that's huge too, because this is becoming a huge lack of faith. And God can easily say, I'm not going to bless that, because that was not my will. That's a lack of faith. But God is a man of his word. Well, not a man, but he's a being of his word. And he promised the children of Abraham would be blessed. And this is huge, because this is not faith. This is not trust in God. This is not what God meant by, I'll bless your descendants. Yet God doesn't go to loopholes in the document, and he doesn't try to get out of it. He says, I made a promise, and I'm going to keep it. And I value the woman because, remember, the promises were not just, I'm going to make you into a great nation, Abram, but the promises were so that you will be a blessing to the world. And Hagar is a perfect example of the world. And Abram has not been a blessing to Hagar by casting her out. But God is going to be a blessing to Hagar by honoring his promises. Because the point of the covenant is even when we fail, the covenant bears. The covenant will not fail because God is always true to the covenant. And that's very important to understand. God is first and foremost faithful to his covenant and then us. Because we can screw up the covenant, but the covenant is responsible for taking care of everybody. Now, don't get that wrong, because if he's faithful to the covenant, then he means he's faithful to us too. But my point is that that's why he's faithful to us, because he's honoring a covenant and not just depending on us being good or not. Meaning that no matter how we function or don't function, God will always honor the covenant. And this is why we praise him that he's faithful to us even when we're not faithful. And he's faithful to use us in other people's lives even when we're not faithful because he made a promise to bless the entire world. And this is huge. And this is where we're really beginning to see what God really means by this Abrahamic covenant that's been established in chapter 15. There's a reason why this is coming after that as well. So she, he's giving him the blessings of the covenant. And so he says, go back and submit to Sarai. 
Now, you might think, well, that's messed up. They were treating her bad. But a couple things are happening. One, she should submit because submission is the character of God, the obedience, and ultimately demonstrated through Christ. He says that he's already talked to Abram and Sarah to receive them back, so we have no idea what that conversation looked like. And he's going to turn around and show that she's not to be degraded as she submits. In fact, he's giving her the covenant blessings as she goes back and submits. So if you think this is about a God who's just saying, go back and obey, then you miss the whole point that he goes on and says, but I'm going to make you numerous. You're going to be a nation. You're going to have great nations. That shows the incredible that Ishmael's not going to be a slave. Ishmael's going to be his own nation. And then we're told he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Now, we've misunderstood that to be, you think, we think, oh, donkeys. Donkeys are wild. They're stubborn. They're, that means he's just going to be this crazy man. And it goes on and even says he's going to be against everybody. Oh, there you go. And then we jump on that wagon that, oh, he's the father of the Muslims. Eh, there you go. That's why they are the way they are. Eh. <laughs> First, wild donkeys are not exactly the donkeys we're thinking of. The Israelite donkey is greater than a donkey, but a little bit less than a horse. Horses are not really respected a whole lot in Israel because horses cannot traverse the incredibly hilly terrain, although they're an incredible symbol of prestige and power in Egyptian culture because they have more flat territories. But the reality is the donkey is the donkey that can traverse the hill country. So the donkey is incredibly, and you don't really want to use camels in very hilly country too. So the donkey is the animal that is highly expensive and highly respected. But it's not that stubby, um, stubborn, like short donkey we're used to, like from Shrek. Okay, it's, it's a donkey that looks a little bit more like a horse, but looks like a donkey. And so it can actually run faster. It's, it's swifter than a normal donkey, but not quite like a racing horse. But it can still be an incredible beast of burden. But at the same time, it can traverse the incredibly hilly country. So it's like the best of both worlds. And this is the donkey that was more prevalent in the, Egyptian, or the um, Israelite culture. And this is considered, it is a donkey, and though it's very expensive, which usually means that don this donkey is connected to wealth and power. So think businessmen and kings and that kind of stuff, which means the donkey becomes an image of kingship. And so this is important to understand because when Solomon is made king, they're going to put him on a donkey and parade him through the streets as they declare him king. Now, if a donkey was something bad, that's a mixed message especially when he's being challenged for the throne by his older brother, Adonijah. This is also why Jesus rode on a donkey. Now, I know we teach that was a symbol of humility because that's what it is to us as Europeans or coming from a European culture. But you ever wonder if he's humbling himself? Why is he accepting everybody calling him praise, um, God and king and that kind of stuff? So that's a mixed message. Donkeys were kingships. So the idea is that he's going to be a king. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be respected. He's going to be honored. And he's going to be hostile to everybody. It's not that he's going to be anti-everybody and everybody's going to be anti-him. It's that he's going to be his own man and he's going to do his own thing and other people are not going to like him because he's not going to get on board with the way the world does things because he's going to establish his own way of doing things. And says so more of the idea that he's going to be his own man 
Not that he's going to intentionally just be this hateful, violent man towards everybody. It's just that many people are not going to accept him because he's going to do things his own way and he's not going to care what people think about him. There's going to be something unique about Ishmael and the Ishmaelites because God is going to back him just as much as Isaac. And that's what God is blessing him with. That is what God is promising him. And this is incredible. So Hagar named Yahweh, who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me, El Roy. Now this is huge, because not only is God naming Ishmael as in, I hear you, but Hagar is then naming God, you saw me. She's acknowledging that this God did recognize her. But what's even bigger than this is that this is the only time that a human ever gives God a name in the Bible. And who did it? An Egyptian slave woman. That gives incredible honor so that when you get to the statements where God says, take care of the women, the foreigners, and the poor and the slaves, that should ring very powerful if you get that this is the only time a human has ever named God. And what she names him is, God saw me. Because most people in the world don't see her. They don't see slaves. They don't see foreigners. They don't see poor people. Because this is the character of God. And this is the power of this story. The story demonstrates the lack of faith of Abram, but still being declared righteous. Abram's lack of faith presenting a new challenge to the Abrahamic promises. But despite that, God is going to honor his promises. He's going to overcome those challenges. And he's acknowledging the person that would probably be the less recognized person because she's a woman, she's a slave, she's an Egyptian, and not only that, she's screwing up the covenant promises. And yet it's that person that God sees, hears, acknowledges, blesses, and makes a covenant promise with. Not as powerful as the Abrahamic, because it's still Isaac that will continue the seed to Jesus. But still, I want you to be a part of my kingdom. And this is how you are to interpret the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is so that you will be a blessing to the entire world, including the people that the world does not see or the people that you don't want to see because they're different, weird, annoying, whatever your excuses are. And we all have those people. You don't have to be racist or prejudiced to have those people in your life. Sometimes it's just because they're weird or difficult or annoying. But that's the people that God says, I hear you. And they say, you see me. That's the point of the good. And so this is powerful because you've got God establishing a covenant with Abraham as an incredible man of faith. And Abraham's like just totally the opposite of what that covenant is. And yet God's coming up and showing that yet that covenant can still operate despite the lack of faith of Abraham. But he's also using this as a theological moment to teach what that covenant really truly is about. And screams the cross before the cross has even come. And so he sends them back. And she says, so Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, who Abram named Ishmael. 
And now Abram was 86 year old, years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. Now, despite this incredible moment of God in this covenant, the narrator comes back in and still reminds you of the reality. And the reality is this. Sarai is never mentioned in the last verse. The story ends by saying, this is the son of Abram and Hagar. And though it was Sarai's idea to have the child, it was Sarai technically should be Sarai's child. In the end, it's really not Sarai's child. Now, this is made for two points. One, it shows you this incredible rift that has now been created in the family because of their lack of faith. And a huge threat that is now going to be presented to Isaac before he's ever even born. But the other thing it shows you is that God is making the point, this doesn't count. Because this is not the child of Abram and Sarah. This is the child of Abram and Hagar. And we all know that this should be Sarah. Because I shouldn't have to directly tell you that. Because if you go back to the garden, the two shall become one flesh, it should have been obvious that that's who I meant when I said, you're going to have a child, Abram. Does that make sense? Notice these stories are always operating multiple levels. They're revealing the human historical part of who we are, but it's always got this theological point here. This is not the promises. And it has to end on that note too, because you might think after God said that to Hagar, that, oh my gosh, maybe this is legitimate. But then the narrator comes back in and says, no, it's not. Remember, it's not. This isn't the fulfillment. This isn't the fulfillment. The fulfillment is going to be bigger, cooler, more miraculous than this is. Not that Ishmael's bad, but this isn't it. This isn't it. Does that make sense?